Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, uncovering Earth's pre-flood civilization. Stonemasons today are at pains to understand how ancient people were able to do this. There are rocks that weigh 1,800 tons, which have been found now, which makes you wonder how that were able they were able to do this and also why i mean why not make life easy for yourself and just use bricks because the answer is they could they had some kind of technology that is different from ours and the consensus that i found in uh, around the world is that these people had complete control over the laws of nature this podcast is supported by reverse speech radio the only podcast in the world that's committed to bringing you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, using the exact same technology as the CIA. They know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Dicadieu and David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech, every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth, catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played backwards. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libsyn.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Freddie Silva is standing by in the great state of Maine to discuss evidence of a great pre-flood civilization. Tomorrow, 
the boys and I hit the road for about a week to see some baseball games in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. And in between games, I'll be producing episodes of Conspiracy Unlimited from our hotel. So if you hear an ice machine in the background during the podcast, now you know why. It's been a mystery how humans suddenly developed civilization around 8,000 BC. But if you ask indigenous people the world over, they'll tell you that about 12,000 years ago, during a period called the Younger Dryas, another culture lived alongside yet separately from humans. Described as unusually tall, fair-skinned, red-haired or blonde, these magicians knew how to bend the forces of nature, enabling them to build extraordinary megalithic temples and develop a comparatively advanced civilization. After a global flood wiped out their island homelands, the remaining gods emerged at strategic locations to rebuild their former world and teach human survivors the roots of civilized society. Then they vanished. Who were these people? Where did they come from? And what did they want with us? Here to discuss is Freddy Silva, best-selling author and leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He's also a leading expert on crop circles. He's a documentary filmmaker, art photographer, and leads private tours to sacred sites in England, France, Egypt, Portugal, Yucatan, Malta, Peru, Bolivia, and Scotland. He's the author of The Lost Art of Resurrection, The Divine Blueprint, First Templar Nation, and his latest, The Missing Lands, Uncovering Earth's Pre-Flood Civilization. Freddie Silva, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Pretty well, Richard. Let's talk about the antediluvian world. Uh, first of all, you talk about, in the very beginning of the book, you talk about these these three main uh, glacial periods, the most recent uh, glacial periods. And they're described as uh, the oldest, the, um, the older, and the younger, Dryas. Now, what is that word, Dryas? What is the origin of that word? Oh, it's very simple, actually. It comes from an alpine flower that seems to uh, uh, sort of cross all three periods. Yeah, I wanted that myself, and it turns out to be something very, very insignificant. Although, if you're a flower lover, it's very significant. But why would they name these periods after this alpine flower? I think it's because it's, it's, it's resistance to uh, a catastrophic change. It seems to sort of uh, keep going, despite the fact that there's uh, a lot of cold weather, a lot of glaciation. Somehow it seems to just be able to survive as a species. So I think there's a sort of a, uh, an, an underlying rhythm to the idea that calling these periods after a flower and the fact that things keep surviving is actually part of a continuing story. Right, and that sort of, uh, that kind of dovetails nicely with the theme of this book, which is really about continuity, isn't it? And and these builder gods that we'll get into in a moment. Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that really fascinates me most about the concept of ancient civilizations, excuse me, ancient civilizations, because uh, there's a few of us who have been at this now for about 20 years, building up and building up information. I wanted to do something really different, and that was to focus on the people 
uh, the gods, if you uh, want to call it that, uh, who were behind all of this sudden burst of civilization. Uh, no one ever seems to sort of really focus on them and also exactly where they lived. And that uh, that's what really formed a part of the book, which was to find out, apart from Atlantis and Mu or Lemuria, was there something else that was involved, some other land that we've been missing because we're so focused on those, those two particular lost islands? And it, it turns out there's a lot more going on. I've heard you describe what you do as working blind, that you're, you're gathering, uh, discovering breadcrumbs or, and then trying to piece everything together. Just elaborate a little bit on that, what you mean by working blind. <laughs> um, I kind of start off with, a, with an idea, something that either um, bothers me or something that amazes me. And I'll sort of go, well, what do, is it true that this concept is correct? Uh, how far can we push this? And how much more can we extrapolate from a particular idea? Um, I kind of just I'll put those questions out there. And it's amazing what comes back because I like my books and my research to basically be dictated by the people who are closest to the actual events. You know, not from uh, the, the mainstream academics, not that there's anything wrong with them. It's just that the view that they keep building up doesn't hold up the scrutiny. And what I like to work is by, by going blind is that I just let the people closest to the events dictate the facts. And then I follow one fact to the other. It's like a game of ping pong, really. I just sort of go from one side of the story to the other, gathering information from the weirdest of sources and looking for a common trait among with these stories. And after a while, when you just step back and get yourself out of the way and get your ego out of the equation and uh, your particular judgment, it's really nice to see the stories just taking on a vibe of their own. And that's why I like working, doing what I do, because it allows um, the story to develop at its own pace, rather from a certain point of view. And I find that the end result is much more interesting, uh, fascinating, and even more coherent than what we've been told. So it's it, it's kind of um, working without a safety net, because you have no idea if anything is going to come out at the end. But incredibly, sometimes it, it, it all seems to come out right at the end. Now, the underlying question here, uh, the big question that we all we all uh, ask ourselves is, you know, how, why and how suddenly did humankind seem to uh, become civilization, um, advances in agriculture and other technology? It just seemed to occur in a flash. Uh, and so your book is trying to address that. Now, which puts you uh, into, I think, kind of in direct opposition to those that adhere to a very popular uh, myth, and that is sort of the ancient alien concept. Oh, so, no. And I'm wondering how <laughs> your work, how your book is, is perceived by that. I'm guessing maybe you get knocked off some Christmas card lists. Uh, no, not at all, because the uh, I, I seem to actually gain more Christmas cards as I go along because the, the, the and, I, and I mean this kindly, the, the problem with ancient alien idea is that there's so little evidence to back it up. It's more personal opinion dressed up as fact. That's not what I'm doing. I won't let the facts basically dictate the uh, theories that I'm building up. Uh, you know, with people like Robert Schock, Graham Hancock, we're all trying to basically do exactly the same thing from slightly different points of view and hopefully all our work keeps overlapping so 
the idea that I'm trying to do is to try and figure out where do the facts go? How, how far can we stretch this idea based on what little has survived in 12,000 years of many, many catastrophes? I mean, we've had 13 uh, near end scenarios uh, since uh, the younger Dryas collapsed. And somehow we all seem to be fighting back and winning. And the main concept of, of what drives me in terms of the um, of putting a story together that actually is full of evidence is again going back to the evidence that yes yeah, sometime around 8000 bc and specific hotspots around the world you do suddenly take on uh, humans who are basically hunter gatherers dragging their wives into caves by the hair and suddenly they discover agriculture and animal husbandry, uh, astronomy and mathematics. Uh, it just seems to arrive pre-packaged. Now, uh, we're all pretty much familiar with this concept, but the idea is where did it come from and who was around to teach them these ideas? And uh, that's why I began to get more into the local traditions, the, more, the local myths, the local legends, uh, with the important caveat that myth is a wonderful method for encapsulating and remembering very important information. Now, we tend to, uh, in the West, we tend to look at myth as being some kind of a theatrical device full of myth. Well, yes and no. It is a great theatrical device for sure. Uh, Plato was very good at it uh, for one thing. But the important thing about this theatrical advice is that it encodes information that you would otherwise forget. And when you ask local traditions and local indigenous people about the stories, they begin to then extract the information in a way that makes sense. Because if you write something, you know, even a thousand years ago or even uh, 2000 years ago, and you try to read the myth, in our eyes, it's very hard to understand. You have to be very patient with the story. You have to read it from the point of view of the people who wrote it and the time period in which it was constructed. So one once you get the local uh, indigenous people involved in the uh, transcribing the myths, that's where the information comes from. And it's full of uh, descriptions about the people, the gods, how they behaved, what they did, where they came from, and how they basically pursued this concept of rebuilding civilization from scratch. Because not only were the human beings decimated by the Great Flood, it was the fact that they too also had huge problems. Not many of them survived. So it was a bit of um, a situation where the gods are saying, well, we don't have the numbers to keep the civilization that we had. Therefore, we now have to go back and teach hunter-gatherers how to basically arm themselves and build a new civilization. And this is where we've ended up today. Uh, in fact, there's a wonderful treatise in the Egyptian texts written at the Temple of Edfu that says that the gods came not just uh, after the younger Dryas, but also before the younger Dryas. They populated parts of Egypt because back then it was the only habitable land, or at least the, the band within the tropics was more habitable than the rest of the earth. And they said, and I quote, uh, we came here to rebuild the former mansions of the gods. So it was a, a sort of a horribly bittersweet story that they were already losing uh, 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 islands and they were losing their nations to rising sea levels um, a thousand years before the younger dryers ended. And they're already setting the stage for their new civilization, which unfortunately they only had about 700 years in which to pull it all back together. 
And um, when they finally put it together, the great flood came upon them. And that's the point where they had to basically say, right, we, we just basically have to teach humans how to, uh, the, you know, the accoutrements of civilization so that they can carry on in our image. And this is where the story gets very confusing. But if you just sort of sit down quietly and compartmentalize the different stories around the world, it makes absolute sense. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And this is a process that goes on. You you say ad nauseum. <clears throat> Excuse me. Absolutely. <clears throat> so we it have the, the we have technological advancement. Then we have some catastrophic event, a meteorite, a global flood, a pole shift. We have these builder gods, and we'll get into their identity in a moment, who somehow survive in a remote location. Uh, and then after after the catastrophe, they they come ashore in a canoe and spread this knowledge. It builds up again until the next cataclysm. Exactly, and the uh, even the, the ancient Greeks were adamant that uh, the world is not fixed. The Earth is actually a very volatile environment, as is the solar system. And the Chinese would agree with them. They said that the orbits of the planets are in no way absolute. They do um, uh, come under the influence of incoming projectiles from outside the solar system, and they do change their orbits. And when that happens... Even the Earth itself, although it may not be directly um, afflicted by uh, meteorites and things, it does come under the influence of the gravitational fields of the planets. 
So they kept saying each time this happens, and it's happened many, many times, uh, all ancient traces are reduced to rubble. Uh, they are buried under silt, which is why you know, a lot of archaeologists have a problem with this story because they don't f find the evidence for an ancient civilization. Well, actually, there are traces. It in, lies in the huge megalithic structures that we find around the world, which stonemasons today uh, are pains to understand how ancient people were able to do this. Um, there's, you know, there are rocks that weigh 1,800 tons, which have been found now, um, which makes you wonder how that were able they were able to do this, and also why. I mean, why not make life easier for yourself and just use bricks? Uh, so, because the answer is they could. They had some kind of technology that is different from ours, and the consensus that I found in uh, around the world is that these people had complete control over the laws of nature, and specifically gravity. They seem to understand gravity in a way that we don't understand today. So when you compile the stories around the world and you see the similarities between the stories and the overlaps, presumably by people who allegedly never had contact with each other, which is again another uh, uh, thing we should address because every culture in the Pacific says that everybody got around very easily around the earth. They were, they were all master seafarers. Uh, they got from A to B across the Pacific as easily as you and I go shopping for a, a can of Coca-Cola at the supermarket. So they were advanced in their own manner, uh, which is what makes the story you know, fascinating and yet confusing for historians today. So these builder gods, and and th this is what the you know the the local indigenous people would have called them wherever these people came ashore. Uh, and again, we're not talking about ETs here. We're talking about some lost, isolated civilization of humans. But uh, they came ashore in in I think you point out about seven different locations. First of all, though, let's talk about these builder gods. What they what they look like. The consensus is actually astonishing, and it never amazed me that uh, when you're asking someone, say, in the South Island of New Zealand, and then you go up to the Yucatan and you ask the same question, you get exactly the same answer. Uh, the unanimous decision uh, throughout these people around the world suggests that they were very tall. And I'm not talking giant task here. I'm talking about between eight and a half and ten feet tall, uh, which to local populations would have made them seem like giants. Uh, the actual height is actually listed in the uh, building text in Egypt. Um, they were very tall. They were red-headed, green-eyed, and also blonde and blue-eyed. And they also had the elongated skulls that we keep finding all around the world. That much is uh, evidence throughout the Pacific, through the Polynesian islands uh, in South America, in the Yucatan, in Egypt, and also around the Black Sea area in Mesopotamia. So we are talking about different groups of people who all went by different names uh, relative to their region, which is what made my work so confusing and also so fascinating because I figured – uh, there must, if these people uh, look the same, surely they must belong to the same brotherhood. And it's when you again look at the local traditions and you begin to realize the overlaps in the in the names and the titles is what links them all together. They seem to have formed the same brotherhood and sisterhood around the world. They always appeared in groups of seven. One of them was a woman who was also married to a charismatic leader who was the eighth, uh, who also happened to be his sister and his wife. Uh, and I think that's more metaphoric than physical, but uh, certainly she was the one that held all the wisdom and also helped propagate the, this divine bloodline that we get to talk about very much. 
Um, so this concept appears all around the world. Uh, they were described as magicians, as uh, incredible astronomers, and extraordinary navigators. And they were able to get around using double-hull canoes. And you still see a trace of it today in uh, Tonga uh, with their incredible catamarans. They seem to be an echo of a technology that was around 12,000 years ago. So uh, I actually find the more you travel through the Pacific, the more you see the echoes of this civilization. So these... Uh, elements uh, and characteristics are pretty much found all around the world. And and so their arrival in these these seven different locations coincides with the the end of the 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 younger Dryas the uh, which was what 10,000 8,000 years ago. Uh, it was about 9,700 BC if we go by the um, glacial record for the actual end of the uh, the uh, um, younger Dryas and the comet that, uh, that disintegrated and hit the Earth. Um, so, yes, they always go around in groups of seven plus one. It's uh, quite extraordinary. And the, in fact, they seem fascinated by the multiplication of seven. Uh, the original group of people who actually were the overlords of these people were also in groups of seven. And there were seven groups of them. Um, and I believe it's to do with the fundamental idea that uh, all nature is based on the um, division of, of the numerical seven in terms of the, uh, the seven notes that make up the music scale and also the seven colors that uh, make up the visible spectrum. Uh, it's that simple, really. They were just basically saying, well, we are masters of nature and how to uh, you know, manipulate nature in a good way. So we're basically going to use this as a symbol and uh, repeat it throughout the world in a way that uh, simple people can understand. And you mentioned the elongated skulls. <clears throat> Are we to then perhaps surmise that this was another branch of uh, hominid? Uh, not you know that we had the Neanderthals, we had Cro-Magnon man, we had Homo sapiens. This this is a separate uh, but related branch of the human family. Well, this is where it gets really interesting because recent analysis uh, by the Paracas skulls in Peru has found that their DNA is a little bit different from humans. And yet, when you ask the indigenous people to describe these uh, gods, they, they were not unnerved by them in any way. So they seem to be humanoid, but yet not quite human. They also had this incredible uh, thing that they did, which was to smear oil on their skin, as though they were very sensitive to the sunlight, or whether they were sensitive to something in the air here on Earth. And if I ask them about the connection to, say, aliens or people who are not from this planet, um, there's always this sort of suggestion that they seem to have the ability to project their physical self to and from Orion. Uh, Orion always comes up in the story no matter where you go around the world, always the belt of Orion, and specifically the M52 or M42 nebula. I'm not sure which number it is, but it's the nebula at the, the, uh, the center of the triangle formed by the three brightest stars in Orion. And I kept wondering, uh, are we dealing here with something that's metaphoric? Are we dealing with a symbol? But uh, if you talk to the Waitaha, who were the indigenous people of New Zealand, and they certainly describe the flood in great detail as an oral tradition. So they've been around for at least 12,000 years. Um, they'll say, no, these people actually came here physically to our villages, and it was they who kept giving us the knowledge that uh, helped us 
evolve as uh, human beings. And again, they were not unnerved by these people. They seemed to be very comfortable with them. Uh, and uh, so it seems to me that these people possess some kind of ability to go to and from uh, the, uh, the earth and somewhere else. And the Hopi also uh, suggest the same thing when they describe these people arriving in um, what they call the flying shields. Um, so this is the big paradox we have here. They're sort of humanoid, but yet not, they're not quite from Earth, and yet they're not quite alien in the way that we would uh, conceive aliens to be. They seem to be part of a continuum of uh, Homo sapiens. They just happen to be, be a little bit taller, a little bit more unusual. And what about their language? Because this is interesting. There, there seemed to be this unique language, which was almost like a, a transitional language. You describe in the book how any any old language could be converted to this language, and then it almost had a mathematical quality to it. Oh, this is amazing. I, uh, I was driving through the um, Acapana, so this will be up in uh, Bolivia and Peru. Uh, I have a wonderful guide who is Ayamara, and uh, what distinguishes him is that he has a beard, and people, uh, men in that part of the world do not have that physiognomy, uh, which set up a whole chapter on the idea that the gods, um, that connects all the gods around the world, is that they are all bearded. So when, that, when they appear in places where uh, human men do, cannot grow, beards of course that sticks out like a sore thumb uh, osiris is one of them with the ceremonial beard vidakosh is another bearded god they're all bearded um and what i found interesting was that he was telling me about aymara being a, a ridiculously old language and there's one even before that called pukina which is even older and these people and there's only nine thousand left of them uh, if that much uh, up in the Altiplano of Bolivia, they uh, still discuss the flood and having arrived from this sunken continent called Mul, uh, from where we get the word Lemuria, uh, that's their word for it. And uh, I began to look into the concept of uh, Aymara as a language, uh, which is very localized. And uh, there was a, a computer expert that actually looked at the syntax of Aymara and found it to be almost like an invented language. It didn't develop organically like language tends to do. Its syntax is particularly useful for translating from one language into a next, as though it's a sort of a central um, computerized algorithm that allows to take one language, bring it to Aymara, Aymara and then transform, uh, translate from Aymara into another language, which is extraordinary when you think about it, because we're talking now as, about a language that's over 12,000 years old. Uh, and I'm also told that uh, in other parts of the world, for example, Sanskrit also has very similar traces of this sort of invented language. Um, and also the uh, language, some languages throughout the, uh, the uh, Pacific are also remnants of this anciently designed language. So again, we have to ask ourselves, if we were just rudimentary people uh, 10,000, 11,000 years ago, how did Ayamara suddenly appear on the scene, fully developed, just like the temple cities, uh, completely designed without any organic movement? Um, that's what is most fascinating uh, about this story about locating a lost civilization. Do you think there's any connection between, let's say, the you know the, the Bible legend of the Tower of Babel when God, you know, when uh, Nimrod was trying to uh, unite uh, mankind in this empire and God said, we'll have none of that and he scattered them all and they all, all of a sudden they were all speaking different languages. Is it possible that, that this language you've just described was the original universal language sort of pre-Tower of Babel? 
it may be one of them. Uh, and what I found more interesting of all was uh, <laughs> the shenanigans that are found in the Bible. Uh, not that I'm downplaying the Bible in any way. It's a very interesting book. The problem is it was borrowed from so many other sources. And specifically, the Babylonians uh, were very adamant that the, um, the Hebrews and the Israelites stole the information that went into the Bible and then basically put their own particular political angle and their religious bias in order to elevate um, Jewish traditions to being better than anybody else in that region. But then again, so many people throughout history have done exactly the same thing. I don't think we can single out the Jewish people uh, in the ancient world for doing that. Uh, the Babylonians themselves had also taken their uh, information and the stories from the Sumerians, who also borrowed it from the Mesopotamians, and they always had a little bit of bias of their own. And that uh, in order to sort of extricate all of this political and religious dogma and get through this mess, uh, I began to look at a lot of the traditions of Siberia and also found that there were people there who survived the Great Flood. They described the gods exactly in the same way as I just described earlier. And they said that uh, one of the things that uh, became apparent after the flood is that uh, everybody got scattered so widely. There was uh, small groups of people suddenly appearing in the middle of nowhere because they'd been dislocated by the rising waters and the massive loss of land that occurred, that they eventually, through uh, isolation for a certain period of time, had to develop language on their own. And this is why the original language uh, seems to have basically spread out in different facets. And we ended up with the, uh, you know, the, the different formats that we have today of at least, as far as I'm aware, 280 different languages around the world. But at the root of it, there seems to have been a certain root language from where everything really came up. So the idea that, uh, that the biblical God uh, suddenly uh, sort of forced the uh, separation of people and to, uh, in order to be able to go into different parts of the world to behave and not be able to communicate with each other through different languages is a bit of a political and religious shift. Uh, and that's, why, again, why I, I like to listen to what the ancients have to say before this information gets taken and uh, slowly changed into a, a particular angle by a, a religious or a political group. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. 
On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. More of my conversation with Freddie Silva on Earth's pre-flood civilization when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Best-selling author and leading researcher of ancient civilizations, Freddy Silva, is here. You mentioned these builder gods. Where there's this, this similarity, uh, they're being described uh, in in South America, Central America, in New Zealand. Uh, where else did they turn up? Oh God, everywhere. Uh, Mesopotamia, of course, is a classic example. We have the Lords of Anu there, the Anunnaki, which get very bad public relations and have for so for a best part of three decades. And I'm not sure who began this. Uh, but it's, I don't think anybody's actually read the story properly about the Anunnaki and the Watchers, who are also the craftsmen and the messengers among the Anunnaki. It, if, you read, if someone actually bothers to read the story properly, uh, you'll find that these people were very benevolent. They were certainly concerned with the welfare of humans. And unfortunately, it was the few uh, Watchers who basically defied orders and began to teach um, ignorant hunter-gatherers uh, how to basically uh, make weapons of war and learn about things that really shouldn't have been doing uh, in their low state of development. Uh, they, these, these watchers, these renegades, were the ones that got all the bad, uh, all the attention, and we began to paint the Anunnaki with the same brushstroke. Uh, couldn't be further than the truth, and I try to rehabilitate the Anunnaki as best as I can based on the original information. Um, once you sort of go to the Pacific, it was amazing to find that the Anunnaki actually survive as a, um, a bloodline in the middle of a Pacific. In fact, they, uh, they were in the Cook Islands in 3000 BC. Um, I was able to contact, and I can't honestly remember how this fortuitous event occurred, but it was the most expensive phone call I've ever made. 
uh, to the last surviving uh, wisdom keeper of the Cook Islands, uh, Mons Pacific Islands, and uh, they, actually, they still had the island named after the Anunnaki. And he was telling me about how they had moved down 3000 BC. Um, I was a bit disappointed at this point because that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for the evidence of the Great Flood and the gods of that era. And he said, oh, but no, they've been coming here much, much earlier than that. Uh, they've been going backwards and forwards to... Uh, a, an island which is now sunk uh, somewhere in the region of the Arabian Peninsula, which completely blew my mind because we've been so focused on Atlantis and, and Lemuria that we forgot that there may have been other places where the uh, gods used to hang out. And it turns out that today's Arabian Peninsula is basically taking up the region where this lost island of the gods and specifically of the, of the Anunnaki used to be, which is why we've had such a hard time trying to find it. Um, and in the middle of the Pacific, they, they actually took on different names. They, they were called the Nagi uh, or the Anunnaki in India. And the Nagi basically means the people of the serpent. Um, when you actually go through China and Japan and then um, swivel around to Central American Yucatan, you find this um, title, the people of the serpent, appearing throughout those regions. And that's what helped me connect the Anunnaki also to Central America. Um, in this part of the world, we had refugees coming from uh, Atlantis or the Atlantic, or Atl, as they used to call it, uh, a group of people called the Its, uh, who basically were also called the people of the serpent. Uh, they basically connected to people in Guatemala who came from the Pacific, who also had the same title of office. And in turn, the people that went from the sunken continent of, uh, of Atl went to today's Portugal, where they also were known as the people of the serpent. So you begin to get this idea that this title of office connects all of these brotherhoods from around the world. But if you want to look at this as an essential whole, uh, it pretty much they were the, uh, the same people as the Anunnaki from the Middle East, who also had, confusingly enough, and there'll be a test on this later somewhere. <laughs> I'm taking um, notes. <laughs> Uh, and this is what makes the, this work so fascinating. It's just be, you know, keeping your, your head together while you're reading this. They had a, um, a title called The Shining Ones. And again, it was all down to a description that they used to smear this oil on them as though they were applying some kind of suntan lotion or a sunscreen. And that uh, you find the Shining Ones also appearing in Egypt as the foundation gods. Uh, they were called the Shining Ones, followers of Horus. And they also appear in, this, in the Pacific as well, and also in South America. For example, Viracocha uh, went there with a group called the Hai Hai Wapanti. Uh, try pronouncing that when you're drunk. <laughs> and uh, I asked my Aymari guy, I said, well, does that mean anything? They said, yes, it means the Shining Ones. And this is where the famous city of Tiwanaku gets its name from. It literally is an Egyptian word that means the city of my shining people. So... Again, it was spending all of these years connecting all of these separate dots and finding out that, yes, by all of these names, whether you call them the Anunnaki or the Anunnaki or the Shining Ones or the Watchers or the Serpent People, they were all essentially the same brotherhood, uh, and they're all united by these different titles. Um Something just occurred to me, the, the idea of, you know, they, they, they were rubbing this oil on themselves. And um, when we think of the term Messiah, which means anointed, and that seems to sort of suggest, you know, anointing oneself with oil or what have you. Is there a connection there? Actually, it's a very erudite question. Uh, I like that. 
and yes, I believe there is. Uh, and uh, I think that by then they had actually not really understood what they were doing. They had an idea of what they're doing. You know, when, when a, a piece of truth is spread out for thousands of years, all you get is, is this sort of lack of understanding and superstition behind it. And people sort of do things just because they're used to doing it from one generation to the next. And yet the original idea somehow has been lost. So in the original book of Enoch, uh, the uh, Enoch who actually happens to be a Sumerian uh, craftsman called Emet uh, Uwano, uh, again, showing that the, uh, the Hebrew tradition basically borrowed from someone else. But regardless, we are talking about the same person. Uh, he was in the um, palace of the Anunnaki, and he went to meet the Lord Anu himself and the four uh, people around him who eventually turned out to be the archangels, as described in the Bible. Uh, but they're real people, physical people. And he describes them being uh, anointed with oil because it, it was something about their skin that they seem to be have a bit of discomfort being here on this planet. Now, they were part of this divine bloodline. They had to interbreed among themselves and not breed with humans for two reasons. One, they were much taller than human women. And if you ask uh, people, for example, in the, uh, the Wichita of Oklahoma or the Hopi, they are uh, very adamant that uh, in the old days and times long gone, the, these giant gods used to sometimes interact and breed with human women, and they caused huge problems because the uh, babies that were born ended up coming out of the size of infants, obviously, and that the mothers inevitably died during childbirth. So for this very reason, the, uh, the gods ended up sort of pretty much uh, breeding on their own, uh, a lot of intermarrying. Now, when you have so few people that survived a flood, this causes huge problems genetically here on Earth. And um, what they uh, began to find is that um, they tried to experiment for a couple of thousand years, as far as the records go, into trying to figure out a way on how the gods could interbreed with uh, human women and everybody still was able to survive and maintain the DNA. The idea of that uh, the uh, concept of anointment, uh, an anointing with oil, survived the uh, thousands of years of tradition, really ends up somewhere in Sumeria in about 3000 BC, where the priestesses, who basically were the uh, guardians of the temple and certainly had the hierarchy of the temple, uh, they were still doing the anointment, uh, to, excuse me, the anointing with oil uh, in 3000 BC. And as that concept starts going towards the uh, Near East and Asia Minor, we find the same story, of course, happening in the Bible and with Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And there's the connection because Mary Magdalene was said to have been part of that long genetic tradition that went back to Sumeria, which itself went back to the lords of Anu. Um, and uh, she herself, in order to be a high priestess of the temple, she was the only one who was allowed to anoint anyone with oil. And those facts alone uh, are, are an echo of this long tradition of anointing, which goes all the way back to the lords of Anu. And of course, after that, it gets taken up by the church uh, with very, very different reasons. I want to talk about these huge um, edifices, uh, in particular, you know, the standing stones and things like Stonehenge and Gobekli Tepe. Uh, some have suggested, you know, these are essentially celestial calendars. But as you have you pointed out, as you've pointed out in your book, uh, if you want to trace celestial bodies across the sky, the sun, the moon, the solstices, etc., you can simply stick sticks in the ground to align them. Why go to this trouble? Uh, of, of these huge stones, some of which weighed t tons and tons. 
I know it's quite funny, really, isn't it? I think the the obvious answer is because they could, but the practical answer is that they obviously felt compelled to build temples that would outlast anything. And when you've just been um, subjected to a flood where, by all accounts, the waters transgressed the Himalaya, the Olympic Mountains in uh, around Seattle and the Cascades and the Rockies. You're talking about waters that were over two miles high. And uh, I actually found a ballistics expert that was able to prove at Los Alamos that, yes, it is absolutely correct that a projectile of the right size and the right shape hitting the ocean at the right point uh, would be able to generate tsunamis that high. Well, after such a distraction, you would really would want to make sure that all the information that you'd gathered up for thousands of years, and the Sumerians were under no illusion that uh, their king list goes back 140,000 years. So when you have that kind of long tradition and a lot of work that you've been doing on the earth to build civilization in bits and pieces, uh, you want to make sure that's going to survive. And uh, the Egyptians and the Arab traditions do maintain that they were forewarned by prophetic vision uh, 200 years before the disintegrating comet hit the earth. And they said that's when we build the pyramids to make sure that the uh, buildings withstood the cataclysm so that the survivors could pick up from where they had left off. So I do believe, having read all of these traditions around the world, that the reason why they engaged in such uh, ridiculous uh, construction methods. Uh, like I said, you know, one of the stones of Baalbek is 1,800 tons. Uh, we thought the one on the surface at 8,800 tons was big until the German archaeologists dug down beneath that one and found two more. Uh, the reason why they built this was to make sure that the monument would last into our lifetime. And I have spent quite a bit of time talking to people at NASA uh, in conferences who find it rather ironic that they right now in the 21st century are behaving exactly as the gods used to do before the flood. They're beginning to take a huge importance in the sky. They're beginning to understand the importance of near-Earth objects, and they are basically consumed by the idea of asteroids and other projectiles that uh, seem to be on a collision path with the Earth in this particular decade and the next. And it's not lost on them that uh, we too are beginning to wonder about how we would cope in order to survive and promulgate the species after such an event. So when you get these people off the record, they pretty much think like the way that we, uh, you and I are right now, Richard, which is we're talking about these ancient people that kick-started civilization, put us on our course that we are today, and we're now facing exactly the same decisions. So it really was a sort of a, a self-help um, technology where we would uh, they the reason that we would be looking at the same problems thousands of years later and to make these places look so extraordinarily attractive to the eye alone means that someone somewhere will have the courage to examine places like the pyramids or Baalbek or Gobekli Tepe and you know, unravel the information and the knowledge that's hardwired into the actual stones. Because, yes, you only need a, a bunch of sticks to tell you what the uh, sun and the moon is doing. But after that, if you start extrapolating the measurements and the uh, alignments of the temples, you begin to realize that these things are packed with universal mathematics, the motions of a lot of stars, uh, including Sirius, for example. Uh, we also understand that these temples are... Uh, uh, 
literally pinpointing the Earth's electromagnetic energies, which flow like serpents along the uh, the Earth, and they basically make sure that these energies don't go astray, that uh, the energies are contained within these temples, and we now also have data to suggest and prove that these energies do have an effect on people's consciousness. So whether you're getting the information by taking a measure of the temples, uh, whether you want to use mathematics or extrapolate geometry from them, we also have the ability to connect with another level of reality by also meditating in the temples and reaching that level of consciousness, which allows us to extract information from an, an astral reference library. Uh, all of these things are now beyond uh, uh, question that they do exist in these temples. And I do believe this shows that someone had complete understanding of the laws of physics and of nature and left this self-help um, policy that we could discover it in a time of need. So, for example, Stonehenge uh, wasn't just, you know, to help the people in Salisbury Plain figure out when they should be planting Durham wheat because of the position. <laughs> of, it was also an early warning device, right, to warn them about the next cataclysmic event, the next comet. Yes, they were absolutely um, fascinated by the sky and had to track it. Uh, I mean, Stonehenge, the original post telescope back to 8000 BC, uh, which is not far from the time when the uh, Shining Ones, the followers of Horus, were rebuilding the mounds in Egypt and setting up the temples. And then, as it is written in the building texts, went walkabouts in the rest of North Africa and went up to the uh, northern territories to build uh, new observatories. Um, when you start overlapping the story with the Maya, uh, who in inherited their calendars from the Itza, um, they were tracking uh, stuff in the sky that goes back 140,000 years. I mean, again, this seems like an absurd amount of time for people who had an average lifespan of 60 years. It would not serve anyone to basically show off their dexterity at uh, figuring out what was going on in the sky for that length of period. And the only thing that made any sense in this project was that they were tracking long periods of time. They were tracking long cycles because they had already learned from their forebears that um, at the close of each cycle, and there are many, many cycles and sub-cycles, um, that you have to look at what's happening around you. The Earth needs to evolve as an organism. And also, we are subjected to periodic bombardment from space. Well, once you understand the Earth's position in the bigger scheme of things and your position on the Earth, now you can prepare accordingly because some people will die and some people will survive. And that's the story of the Earth. And they were very happy with this arrangement because they had a, a wonderful fatalistic approach to life. They recognized that everything is exactly as it should be. Some people are here for a short period of time, some for a very long period of time, and others will go on to promulgate the knowledge to other people who have yet to be born. So it's part of the continuing uh, circle of life of which every culture except for the Western is comfortable with. Uh, we tend to be very linear people. We give birth, we die, and that's the end, and that's it. But for every other culture on the face of the earth, it's about the cycle. It's about the continuing drama that we put ourselves into as part of an ongoing experience. And I find the, uh, the answer actually very romantic and very poetic, but also very practical. How did the builder gods then survive? Uh, they, I mean, they retreat to some remote island, but how does that prevent them from perishing in a, in a, in a cataclysm, uh, you know, uh, impact from a, a planet-killing uh, asteroid. 
The um, surviving texts, of which the most complete are the uh, building texts in Egypt and also the Puranas of the Tamil culture of southern India, uh, they have very good overlaps here. It was a matter of luck in many cases. We're talking about a, um, a specific catastrophic event that hit certain parts of the world. But of course, you know, the earth is quite big. So, of course, depending on where you are and if you happen to be at the right place at the right time, you actually get to survive. And um, I was amazed to find that the uh, Waitahara of New Zealand also described this event where the gods who used to travel from from um, Tiwanaku in Bolivia to Easter Island and then down to the South Island of New Zealand and back. They kept doing this every year. And then one year they didn't arrive because they called them the tides of chaos suddenly were upon the earth. And it was pure luck. Um, that the uh, a group of gods happened to find themselves in the middle of the Pacific where all they experienced were titanic waves which they were able to uh, overcome, although it did sink one of their canoes, so they, they basically scuttled one canoe to save the other. And they also uh, encountered formidable uh, winds, which were obviously part and parcel of the meteorite strikes. Uh, even in uh, the Atlantic, there were groups of gods who just happened to be in the middle of the water when this problem began. So if you uh, know your um, naval uh, ability and you're able to be in the middle of the, uh, of the ocean, uh, any large impact at, uh, on an ocean level will better create massive waves. It's when you're close to the shore that the problems begin. And that's where the tsunami takes on the appropriate height relative to the size of object that hits the, um, the water. So luckily, these people, these groups of gods, happen to be in the middle of the ocean when the actual catastrophe happened. And uh, the Egyptian texts uh, go on to say, and it's almost a, a bittersweet story as I read these things, that the uh, they found themselves literally just going from uh, little sort of speck of land to speck of land because the land mass that they had known had sank. So they were going from island to island, literally surviving on their skills and slowly finding their way east to Africa, uh, which by then had become desert. It had been originally been a big ocean where the Sahara is today. And they eventually find themselves in the middle of Egypt and they begin to rebuild the former world of the gods. And you have the same story as well uh, in South America, in parts of the Pacific, where they went from uh, uh, island to island, the remains of the mountains that used to be formed part of a big landmass. So it was part um, organ educated guess, because they, I'm not sure that they actually knew exactly where these projectiles were going to hit, but they knew something was coming. And uh, they, I think they scattered their people in order to make sure that wherever these uh, gods were, some would get hit, some would be overcome and others would survive. When the next cataclysmic event happens, according to these complicated interwoven you know, cycles, uh, then who will survive? I mean, these builder gods are no longer here. Yes and no. It depends who you talk to. Um, I thought it was very interesting that uh, I had a very good conversation with Clifford Mahuti, the uh, Zuni elder, who's never short of incredible information about his people's uh, traditions uh, and the Hopi, uh, with whom they overlap, that, you know, these gods, um, they call them lookers in the American Southwest, uh, otherwise known as watchers. They said they still pop up once in a while in physical form in the Amer Native American Southwest and also in the uh, Dakotas. Um, the Lakota people also talk about this. And uh, recently, and this goes back to my first book that I wrote, oh, I think it's almost like 
two decades ago about the origin of crop circles. And I know I can talk on this show about this without being laughed at because we have proof beyond a doubt that uh, there are real crop circles and then there are rubbish man-made crop circles and you can differentiate one from the other. And the core group of people who were behind the original genuine crop circles were also calling themselves watchers, except paradoxically, they were communicating through a trance medium in England, a good friend of mine, who um, received the information from these discarnate people called watchers who would be giving us information uh, using geometric symbols in fields that would basically form the foundation of a new understanding in order to prepare us for the upcoming changes. And that's all they said. And at that point, we had no idea what they were talking about because we never heard uh, of a crop circle before. Seven days later, we had our answer. So I find it rather... Um, almost hair-raising and yet uh, reassuring that the watchers not only are communicating via uh, very uh, gifted people uh, in uh, from a discarnate source, but also, according to the Native American traditions, these people are still also appearing here on Earth in physical form. Uh, the Waitaha of, uh, of the South Island of New Zealand also states that they are also still appearing sporadically in physical form. So we're talking about a very complex story here, a very complex universe that's going on here. But it also brings us back to the story of, you know, what exactly does constitute a physical reality because so many of the traditions state that the watchers, and I quote, the watchers could take on human and physical form whenever they wanted to. So it seems to me that we're coming back full circle to another end of another cycle, uh, exactly as the Maya and the Tamil have said that we are now within the last 30 years of the, uh, of the, of the, of the next cycle. Uh, this concept of 2012 having been the end of the world was so terribly misunderstood. It was basically a pivotal moment in time and that uh, the window of opportunity for this change is 30 years either side so we're still within that window of uh, changes happening and we can see them all around us so the the watchers who are essentially the messengers or the go-betweens between the lords of anu or the anunnaki are still communicating they're still providing information in the crop circles uh, we have extracted new mathematical theorems from these designs we have extracted anti-gravity information which three groups of scientists have built around the world and i am sworn to secrecy on this because they will reveal the information in their right time when it's politically expedient to do so and i can totally understand that so i will honor that agreement and um, it's all based on the image that i put on the cover of my book because i knew exactly what that image is doing and i put it out there so that people uh, groups of scientists where it would be able to build it and they have and it does defy gravity and one of the things that uh, we were told by the watchers was that we are giving humans the information in order to develop a new uh, level of consciousness a new technology to get off fossil fuels in order to minimize the effects of the coming changes and those are their words because the changes are upon us whether we like it or not uh, we've signed up for this agreement to be here at this a momentous moment in time but the outcome would be how we interact with the earth and also our ability to use our god-given intent to maybe alter the outcome the missing lands uncovering earth's pre-flood civilization freddie how do people get a copy of the book oh you can support your uh, authors by buying direct from them uh, if you know what I'm saying. So you can go to invisibletemple.com, which is my website. Freddie Silva, thank you so much.
Thank you very much, Richard. Always a pleasure. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to tell you a little bit about what's on tap for the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Coming up next time, was the Old Testament's greatest prophet, the man who led the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt, murdered by a rival and replaced by an imposter? In Goethe's account, he felt as if that Moses was just incompetent, basically. And uh, he thought that the people got fed up with following him, wandering around the desert, uh, and killed him and replaced him with somebody else. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 